Hey everybody, welcome to West Seattle Christian Church Online. My name is Worth, and if you're new, welcome. Thanks for joining us. If not, welcome back. We started our summer series focused on the narratives of the book of Genesis just a couple of weeks ago, and we've said that they're extremely important for our spiritual formation and identity in Jesus. So if you've missed a service, check out our YouTube channel and backtrack and watch from the beginning. And if you're already watching this on YouTube, go ahead and help us out and hit that subscribe button below. Every subscriber to the channel expands our ability to share the life-changing story of Jesus. And you can be a part of that by simply just hitting subscribe. Next, we know that many in our community are getting vaccinated. In fact, Seattle in particular, King County, have some of the top vaccination rates in the country. And even though this is the case, and uh, due to the new guidance document for phase three gatherings for faith-based organizations that came out on May 13th, we are still erring on the side of caution, particularly when it comes to gathering as a larger group, and especially because we have non-vaccinated kids with us and some community members with immunity issues. So due to the complexities of what is required for the next phase three guidance, uh, we're gonna be adhering to phase two regulations for the time being, and we'll not be asking uh, when you come in person, we're not gonna ask for proof of vaccination and we're not gonna provide vaccinated only seating sections, but we will continue to exceed the six foot socially distance requirement and continue to ask that everyone stay masked, even though technically uh, you could choose not to, we're gonna ask that everybody does. So now all that said, our next in-person service is gonna be uh, next week on Sunday, June 6th. So please hop online and pre-register for that today. Please know that our pre-registration records are only kept for two weeks in the unlikely event of an outbreak and that this is mostly just helping us for planning for our setups. So once again, the service will be family style. Kids City won't be open, but we'll have grab bags for the kids to keep their fingers occupied during service. So now following that service at 11.30 a.m., we're gonna have an in-person newcomers hangout. So if you're new with us and you wanna to get to know the church, it's gonna be socially distanced in our worship center where you get to hear all about who we are and what we're about as a church. You can find the sign up for that on our blog on the church website. So please sign up and let us know that you're coming. So we'll have uh, enough materials, enough snacks ready, that kind of thing. Last but not least, on June 6th, that same day we're having our in-person service, the same day we're having our newcomers hangout, we would love it if you would join our clothes drive for the West Seattle Food Bank Clothesline Program. The Clothesline Program, if you don't know, is housed in our annex in our lower parking lot off 41st. Uh, it's where community members in need can come and get clothing uh, for their entire family, and it's a really good program. And so. Uh, when we meet in person, we'd love for you to start now, this week, uh, gather, going through your stuff at home, figuring out if you have gently used stuff or you can even go out and buy new things and bring them. There's a whole list, an announcement slide up. It's on our website uh, and everything like that. So you know what is most needed and uh, see if you can bring that stuff and drop it off. And we want to just fill the bin that we have to overflowing. So hope you'll be a part of that as well. So a few weeks ago, we looked at the beginning of the story of God in Genesis 1. And we covered the rhythms and cadences that we find in this ancient Eastern creative uh, creation narrative poem. And we talked a lot about genre and how if you don't understand the genre that it's written in, then what you believe about this God who is telling the story, it can be really messed up if you, if you don't understand the genre. Your orthodoxy, which is the right belief about this story, has a profound effect on your orthopraxy, which is the right living that, of your life that you based on what you believe in your head. So key to this poetic creation narrative is the understanding that there are some deeper truths buried within the text that are there for those who are willing to do the hard work to discover them. 
chief among those deeper truths are, first of all, that this story is about the who and the what, not necessarily the accuracy of the how this creation happened. And we went even further examining the chiastic structure of the poem, and we centered in on the term moad, which means sacred times or Sabbath or festivals or party. And we studied this against the backdrop of God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt and how he hands down this creation narrative to them so that they can see how he is different than the other gods that all the other people groups around them are worshiping. And we talked about how this story about God, the creator of the universe, is very much interested in showing his creation that Moad is very important. Because in remembering that God values rest, that God values how good his creation is, and that humans are a part of that, he's emphasizing our identity and our self-worth, that our, that our worth is not tied to what we produce and how hard we work, but it's tied to the fact that this creator God made us and he made us in their image. He says, he's saying in no uncertain terms, I value you and I love you. And the other deeper truth we looked at last week is that we often skip the first creation story, often making it about the how, when it really is about the who and the what. And we move right along to the second creation account, Genesis 3, which focuses on sin and its consequences. We sum this up by saying that the story actually doesn't begin with sin, and the story isn't going to end with sin either. And if you get this order right, then your theology might just be a little stronger, a little more robust, and more focused on restoration and good life here than just getting out of here and pointing the finger at all the bad stuff out there. So all of that to say, chapter one of Genesis is super important. And if you want to hear more on that, go back and watch and listen to the first teachings in, in this series. Today, we're going to move on to some other chapters in Genesis. We're not going to cover like all the little nitty gritty details in these chapters that we're going to look at, but we're going to we're going to be looking at the overarching, like an overarching theme that I think God is trying to communicate to us. Last week, we ended by talking about day six and the creation of mankind. And then on day seven, God does what? God rests. At the beginning of Genesis 2, it says, on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. What's missing from this part of the text is that rhythmic refrain from the other days that we've already looked at from, from last week. And that refrain is, it was evening and it was morning. It was evening and morning the seventh day. Well, actually, it doesn't, it doesn't actually say that. So day seven, it, it doesn't stop. Day seven just doesn't end. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this theme later in the New Testament in, in the end of chapter three and, and in chapter four, where he says, we're invited into this rest today, right now. We don't always have to keep striving and working so hard and we can stop. We can rest and we can trust in the goodness of God's creation. So in Genesis 1, we looked at all these themes that showed up over and over again. One of those themes was God's declaration of, it is good. That reality from God is important to keep in mind because as we lean into everything we're going to look at today, it's, going to, it's just going to be really important. So let's pick it up in Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. So let's stop right there. We've studied this rhythm of it is good. So this is a call to pay attention when the exact opposite phrase is used. When the text saying the text is saying it is not good, we should sit up and pay attention. What is not good? What is not good here is for the man to be alone. And before we go on, I want to think about this for a minute. Let's let's just think about this. If you've been in church for a while, do you think when God made man and formed him from the dust of the earth, do you really truly think he made a mistake and forgot to create woman? No, he didn't. I think God purposely waited just a few seconds to create woman because if he hadn't, we would have missed a lesson that really we can't afford to miss. And this is that lesson. We cannot be alone. And by that, I mean even in a bigger and wider sense than marriage, it's more than that. We, as human beings, cannot be alone. Humanity is built upon relationships. We need others. We need others so much that if we don't have them, there's no real meaning to life. And this is where life comes from. And so God creates a helper. And honestly, that word is not the best when you look at the original language, that word helper. A better word is the word partner, an ezer connecto, a connector, which means a helper that opposes, kind of like an A-frame or two halves of an arch with opposing force that help a structure stand up. It means a co-equal, but not identical. Co-equal, not identical. Someone on your team who has your back, who will fight fiercely by your side to protect you, to support you. So we would assume after this declaration that it's the declaration that it's not good, that God's going to form a partner for him. But what's really interesting is that the story doesn't jump directly to that part. What it says is this. Let's pick it up in verse 19. It says, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. All right, so Adam is naming all these animals, one after the other, and with each type, he's seeing two of a kind. And when, it's, when he's done, it says this, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And I think this is lesson number two. You and I, humanity, we are not, we are not animals. In the animal kingdom, there is no one like you that is fit to be your Ezerkenegdo, your partner. And this re-emphasizes what we learned on day six in the creation poem. It's animals, and then he creates humans, and there is a distinction between the two. So then it continues in verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs. So let's stop there. In Genesis, if you didn't pick this up from the last two weeks, imagery is super important. And there is a lesson in every part of the story. In other words, it's not like God ran out of stuff to make Eve from. And he says, sorry, dude, I got to take your rib because I ran out of material. No. In this Mesopotamian culture, in all of the other creation myths that anyone of that time would have been familiar with, women were created out of different things or stuff, and they were created for only a few really base reasons, to help create more men or to serve men. And the imagery here is different on purpose. Man and woman are made of the same 
substance. And this harkens back to another key point from Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. They are both in the image of God. They are both of the same stuff. Verse 21 says, So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, Isha, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, if you took sin out of the Bible, you'd have a little brochure that only has four chapters in it. Genesis 1 and 2 on one hand, and Revelation 21 and 22 on the other. Genesis 2, verse 25, is the last verse in the first half of the brochure. And this is important to note because this verse sets up the context of everything that happens since sin enters the world. Uh, this tells us what it used to be like and what it was always meant to be like, to be naked and not ashamed, to be exposed and to be okay with it, to know that I'm good, to be in the kind of relationship with others that I could trust you to be naked in front of you and not worry about it, not one little bit essentially to be, to be vulnerable, and, and it's okay. Now, before we go any further, let's take a look at that word naked in verse, in verse 25 of chapter 2. The word we read in, in verse 2, 25 is the word aramim. And in Genesis 3, 1, the word for crafty, referring for the snake, is the word arum. And so we go from 2, 25 with aramim and to 3, 1 with the word arum. And both of these words share the same root word in Hebrew. What we also will discover is the word nakedness shows up several times in chapter 3. But what, what is clear in the Hebrew is there is a word play going on here, or a play on words that's present in the Hebrew. Eremim, or shrewd, is another way of saying nakedness in this play on words. And arum is another word of saying shrewd or crafty or wise. So... What does this have to do with the story and this, this tree of knowledge of good and evil? One way of thinking about it is that in their nakedness, there is a wholesomeness and integrity to humanity that the snake is jealous of. And so he's seeking to undermine their integrity by telling half-truths and lies and trying, them, trying to get them to give up their integrity. So along those lines, way back in the third century, uh, the Targum translates this verse by saying, and they were both wise, the man and his wife, but they did not remain in their glory. The central tree to avoid in this story is the one that has to do with the knowledge of good and evil, and they don't avoid it. So this tree represents knowledge, but more than that, wisdom. So what happens when they get this wisdom? What happens when they eat that fruit? Maybe a better way of asking it is this. What happens when humanity gets its hands on the knowledge of good and evil. The evidence of the story indicates this. When the knowledge of good and evil is in anybody's hands other than God's, suffering and death come into play. 
And it's with this new knowledge that we go into chapter 3. And if you know this story, I want you to kind of pretend like you've never heard this before. Starting in verse 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? In the, in the Hebrew, when he says that, did God really say, it's more actually like he's making a statement. He's not asking a question, really. He's basically saying it with emphasis, emphatically. He kind of leaves it hanging. Did he really say that? Come on. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you, or you will die. But side note, if we're being precise here, God didn't say anything about touching it. That's what the serpent kind of throws in there. Verse 4, you will, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat, it, eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So remember those three phrases right there. Your eyes will be opened, you will be like God, and knowing good and evil. Just hang on to that for a minute. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. I want to pause here for a moment. This idea shows up in the New Testament in John, uh, 1 John to be precise, uh, verses two, or chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, where he says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, and here's the tie-in to what, what it says in Genesis 3, 6, where it says the food was pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. John says this uh, in verse 16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So he, John outlines these three categories and says all temptations fall into these. And it's reasonable. It makes a lot of sense when you look at it. John, I think John's right, and I think he's echoing Genesis because Genesis is right. We desire things to fill us, things that are good for food. We desire things that are pretty and beautiful to look at because if we have them, then people will see us. And we also desire things that will make us wise, things that will make us seem better than others, like skills or strengths or, or humor or intellect, that kind of thing. On a grander level, there are a couple things going on here in the text, I think. The serpent is trying to tempt Eve into acting like an animal, i.e., just do what you want. Just do what feels right. Follow your instincts. And what are your instincts? Well, your animal instincts, says the serpent. On another level, the serpent is luring and seducing Eve by saying, God has withheld something from you. There is something else that you need that can make you better, stronger, wiser. You are not good enough without that something. There's something else that you should have that you deserve and you're without it, you're lacking. And that's really the ultimate temptation of chapter three. There's something that you need, that we need, that I need, that humanity needs, and without it, you're not good enough. So Eve takes some and she eats it and she gives some to Adam too. And so, just, wait a minute, Adam, Adam is there. He's eating a mango and sipping his kombucha and dreaming of the day when there's going to be flaming Hot Cheetos and Sriracha to eat. <laughs> Meanwhile, Eve is chatting it up with a snake, like you do. And then he eats it. And then after they both eat, not after she eats, but after they both eat, because we're relational beings that are tied together, their eyes were opened. And the snake 
was actually telling the truth partially, at least half of it, because there's also this play on words going on here about cleverness and nakedness and wisdom and shame that results in a few things, namely covering up uh, for one group and the snake being cursed. Later, it says that Adam and Eve became like God, knowing good from evil. Truth is good, but in the wrong context, truth can be used as a lie to trick. You can be tricked in this way, and you can trick others in this way. Is it cleverness? Is it wisdom? After they both eat, their eyes were open. So were they blind before? No, they could see. But this means, what this means is that the way they looked at the world has shifted and it has shifted and skewed demonstrably and dramatically. They now figure out they were naked. Didn't, did they not know they were naked? Of course they knew they were naked, but the way they see their nakedness has changed. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. And so the first thing we noticed when we, when we believe this other truth or this half-truth, the lie that we're not good enough, that we're just animals, we realize we're naked. And the result of that is we want to cover up. And then we read this in verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? So first thing we do is we cover. And the second thing we do is we hide. God knew what had happened, but something has changed. They are no longer in the same position they used to be in. So verse 10, he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. So pretend you've never heard this before. You would assume at this point that Adam is afraid not not of what he says he is, but you would assume that he's afraid of dying because God told him before that if he ate from the tree, that he would die. But is that what the text says he was afraid of? Mm -mm. He says he was afraid because he was naked. He's not afraid of death. He's afraid because of his own nakedness. It says, so I hid. Verse 11, and he said, who told you that you were naked? In other words, what voice are you listening to? We've talked about that before in another series, but had you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Seriously, Adam, dude, you were right there with her. You are just as guilty as she is. Side note, we've been blaming this on the woman for all eternity when man was right there by her side. They're in it together. They are both complicit. So this is what we do. First we cover, and then we hide, and then we blame. And we find ways to explain things away, even if it means hurting others in the process. Anybody else have kids? Asked this before. We, we learned to do this at a very young age. We will find someone else, and we will say it is their fault. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. The honeymoon is over. Then the Lord God said to the woman in verse 13, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now here's a little foreshadowing for us. What happens in chapter 3, it echoes and reiterates into chapter 4. The same questions God asks Adam and Eve, 
He asks them again in chapter 4. The same results of being covered will happen in chapter 4. The same uh, results of being expelled to the east will happen in chapter 4. Now, we like to assume that chapter 3 is about sin and death entering the world. But here's the question. Did sin show up in chapter 3? Sin isn't mentioned anywhere in chapter 3. Did death happen in chapter 3? No, it doesn't happen in chapter 3. Sin and death do happen in chapter 4. They are implied in chapter 3, but that's not the point of chapter 3. Chapter 3 is about our nakedness and our shame, the shame that we don't need to have. And we all, all of us, deal with shame. And some of us are more aware of it than others. Uh, I find the way Brene Brown defines shame in her book, Daring Greatly, really, really excellent. She says this, Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. This is what Genesis 3 is about. It's the problem that's at the root of our human condition. We believe that we are not worthy of love and belonging. We believe that we are not good enough. And chapter 4 is about the result of chapter 3, of believing that we aren't good enough for love, that we aren't good enough for belonging. So this is where the story goes next in chapter 4. Adam made love to his wife Eve. She became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. So the deal with their offerings is that Abel brought fat portions of the firstborn. And Cain just brought some of the fruits. It's not really about caveman diet versus vegan here. So verse 6 says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, you will, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And this, this right here is the first time sin is mentioned in the Bible. And notice what it says. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. And this is the same word used earlier with, in reference to Eve. Your desire will be for your husband. Sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Uh, and it's really interesting. Scholars debate that word desire. Does it mean for you or contrary to you? There's, there's the debate about the meaning of the word in, in the text. And so sin is crouching at your, at your door and its desire it has a desire to get you, you know, is it really for you or is it to be against you? So sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. This is, this is what sin does. It makes me want what you have, and then I want to rule over you. But instead, the text says we should rule over our sin, our desires, our inadequacies, and our shame. We don't have to be animals that just take and follow their gut instincts. Ultimately, Sin is a, like a reduction, a deterioration, a degradation of humanity, which means us becoming less than what we were created to be. 
Sin is also a violation of relationships, our relationship with God and between us and others, between us and creation. Sin exists because between things. It, it causes like disalignment. It keeps uh, relationships off kilter and out of balance. And what we see between chapters 3 and 4 is that sin is a result of shame. We try to be good enough or worthy enough, and if we feel like we have to, we will take from each other if we don't feel those things. Now on to verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were there in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Enter death. This is what the death alluded to in chapter 3 looks like when we kill each other. But here's the thing. Even though most of us don't commit murder, we still attack each other in myriad ways. We still want to take from each other and rule over each other. For example, with our words, we attack each other's emotions and even with our thoughts, especially when we feel left out or like we didn't get our fair shake or we want, or when somebody else gets the attention that we believe we deserve, we then subvert each other. It's like a cancer. Verse nine, then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? Now this is the same question he asked Adam and Eve before, right? Where are you? And you know, Cain says, I don't know. He replied, am I my brother's keeper? And I want you to notice God's response here. God doesn't answer Cain's question. There is no answer to a question like that. And I think it's because the answer to Cain's question is, yeah, yes, you are your brother's keeper. I created you not to be alone. You need others. You're supposed to protect one another, to build each other up and have each other's backs. In other words, why would you ever not keep your brother or your sister? Verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? And that's the same question God asked Eve in the garden as well. Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, just like there was a curse in chapter 3, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. I want you to hang on to that word wanderer for a later date. And Cain is driven east, just like Adam and Eve were. In the same way, God, God covers Adam and Eve's nakedness with animal skins. Here God covers Cain with a mark to protect him. Chapter 4 is the outworking of chapter 3, which starts with us believing what? That we aren't good enough. But God declared in chapter 1, he declared, Tov Meo, you are very good. And this is what the Genesis narrative illustrates for us and introduces us to about mankind, that we believe we're not good enough. This is our problem. And so we think we have to get more and get better and prove something. And this is what sin is. This is what it is. And so we attack, we attack each other and we, we cover ourselves and we hide and we blame and we take from one another. And so it makes complete and total utter sense that the result of the redemption offered in the gospel of Jesus would be the undoing of all that. Go read 1 John 1, where he says that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And if we walk in him as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And if we confess our sins to each other, then God is faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the result of the work of Jesus. So 
what does this mean for us now, now that we have all this understanding and wisdom? Well, first, sin, sin really doesn't change God's posture or position toward us, but it does seem to change our posture towards him. You may have heard this phrase before while you were in church or elsewhere, I don't know, sometime, somewhere, or from someone you know, usually from someone who's a Christian, and the phrase goes like this, God can't be in the presence of sin. Really? Then why was Jesus always accused of hanging out with sinners? And I'm here to tell you that that notion that God can't be in the presence of sin, that's just, uh, that's, it's a flat-out lie. God can indeed be in the presence of sin. And it's here in this story. It's not a limitation that God can be put under. The issue is better phrased like this. God is light. And we are terrified of being seen. And when light shows up, darkness flees. And that's really scary to us. God's posture and position towards you hasn't changed. You don't need to live in fear or worry about how he's going to react to you and what you've done in your life. You can come home. God is not going to yell at you or punish you. He loves you and is going to run and embrace you and throw a party for you when you walk into his light, when you're exposed and it's okay. The second implication is we don't believe we are enough. Like I said before, we don't believe we are enough. And when we don't believe that, we're going to take it from other places. It's as simple as that. And we often take it from other people. And really, no relationship is safe from this. And we need to realize that. Next, our call is to listen to the right voice, the voice that speaks truth. And there are plenty of other voices out there that we could listen to. And we're really good in and of ourselves of being that other voice the other voice that's not God's voice. We're really good about shaming and guilting ourselves. And our culture is really built upon that infrastructure of this lie. We are not good enough. It's what causes us to buy things that are being put before us that are for sale. Lastly, learn to stop hiding. Just, we need to learn to accept our faults. And I know this is terrifying, but we can learn how to do this. Until we are willing to look at what we've done and say, I've done this. I've done these things. God still loves me. It's okay. Be content with who you are and who you're not and realize that you're still a work in progress. You don't need to be someone else. Just be you. Take the risk of being completely seen by him, of being naked and exposed, of trusting that God has you because he does. We'll leave it there for now, and we'll come back next week and wrestle with more of this. But for now, I'm Worth Wheeler for West Seattle Christian Church Online. Stay rooted and deep in Jesus, and produce good fruit, my friends.